Is Dom Jolly a punk version of Michael Palin? Find out soon when I check in with Dom. Dom Jolly's Earworm is just one of the podcasts on this week's chart. A new entry is Undiscussable with Charlie Webster. You'll know Charlie as a TV presenter and as an anchor on Sky Sports. Undiscussable is a heavy podcast about domestic abuse. Charlie, you were a victim which must have affected you. You work in media, which, let's face it, has a reputation for attracting narcissists and sociopaths. With your emotional scars, how did you get on with those kinds of people in the workplace? One boss used to call me an enigma because he used to say that he could never work me out. And that used to unnerve him because he made a lot of people cry and he bullied them. And with me, it really did affect me, by the way. This this doesn't mean things don't affect me. It's just because of the environment I was brought in, I was very, very good at controlling my emotions. And one of the um, behaviors that children brought up in situations like me or have experienced abuse of any form can be detachment. So I was very, very detached. Um, it's called detached protector, basically. It's a maladaptive behavior or an unhealthy behavior in psychology where um, we switch our emotions off to protect ourselves, which is really, really useful in situations of danger, but it's not useful in day-to-day life. It's a survival technique, yeah. Yeah, so, which is great because like, I'm the best survivor in the world when it comes to danger, but I struggled on a day-to-day because that that behavior isn't normal and it's not, you know, I can't, you know, form a good relationship with you, for example, if I'm emotionally detached. I can't form a good relationship with friends or intimate people if I'm emotionally detached all the way and all the time and not showing vulnerabilities because the way we have human connection is through through trust and through vulnerability. So when it came to um, bosses, I didn't show emotion. They could, you know, I remember one of them saying to me that, I remember going on a show, I'm trying not to name things, a show to talk about domestic abuse, actually. And I went on that show and spoke about domestic abuse. And then that show wasn't my normal job. Then I went back to my normal job. And the next day, and it was in the papers that I, you know, had been speaking about domestic abuse. And it was very complimentary about what I was saying in the papers. And then I got told that because of the way I look, this is by the boss, that nobody will ever take me seriously. So how stupid do I think I am by doing something like that? And then I went on air. Oh, this was just before you went on air? Oh, yeah, because that's what they used to do. Good pep talk. Yep, yep. <laughs> but you're right, that it happens and it's quite sick, but it happens a lot in this industry. And it, and I think things are really changing for the better, but it needs to be needs to be really stamped out. And again, it's in a way, it's like a domestic abuse because it's a form of control. So that boss is trying to control you. Hmm. It's very, very, very similar to how domestic abuse works. But the thing is, I'm used to people like that. I was brought up with people like that. And that's why he used to call me Enigma because um, <laughs> cause I didn't break. He couldn't break me. I used to go to the toilet and cry, you know, but I would never do it in front of him. Whereas everybody else, he would manage to break them in front of them. And so he found me difficult and... I found him very, very difficult. But, you know, at the same time, I think it triggered me a lot because it made me stay in that situation for a long time because I was almost trying to prove that I was good enough to be in that situation. But, you know, now I would never, ever tolerate that behavior. And I absolutely did tolerate that behavior. I didn't stand up to it. I just, 
I didn't go, no, this is unacceptable, this is wrong. Because also the problem with those situations is you're taking down a massive, massive company. Mm -hmm. You know, it is an individual, which a lot of individuals can't do and it will absolutely destroy them and destroy their career. And they don't have the financial capability like these big companies do or these people do. But I did absolutely tolerate it. Um, I just got on with it and just tried to do everything to prove them wrong, which I would never do now because that made me realize that that was always my behavior from a young child was constantly trying to prove myself. And then ultimately, you're never going to be happy. And I realized that. Charlie Webster, my special guest this week. It's the Pod 20 with me, Graham Mack, counting down the top 20 podcasts right now based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Let's get into the chart and at number 20, Wind of Change. This is a great podcast. So, it's 1990. The Berlin Wall has come down. The Soviet Union is on the verge of collapse and the soundtrack to the revolution is one of the best-selling songs of all time. The metal ballad, Wind of Change by the Scorpions. Decades later, the journalist, Patrick Radden Keefe, heard a rumour that the song was written by the CIA. This podcast is his journey to find out the truth. It's called Wind of Change. It's number 20 this week on the chart. At number 19, The High Low a weekly conversation between the writers Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes that covers highbrow and lowbrow culture. At 18 this week, Case File, True Crime. Fact is scarier than fiction. The latest episode is all about an amazing murder investigation. If you liked Serial, you'll love Case File, True Crime. Back to the chart in just a bit. Checking in on Zoom, it's Piper Terrett from the Lockdown Lowdown podcast. Last week we spoke about how I was getting into recording audiobooks. My new gig as an audiobook narrator. Oh yeah, how's the audiobook going? How far have you got? Well, I've finished the first one. Mm. My biggest worry with the audiobooks is the neighbours at the minute. Neighbours? Yeah, because I'm doing them in here, which is the... Actually, this is supposed to be the master bedroom, but when you buy a new flat, you know, a large wardrobe is known as the master bedroom. Behind that wall just there is the neighbor's bedroom. Ah. And I'm doing these, you know, that, that last one I told you about the battle scenes. Yeah. You know, come on, you bloody bastards! And I mean, <laughs> I'm getting right into it. It's bayonets and whatever. <laughs> But there was an awkward sex scene in a temple. <laughs> in a temple. Uh, in a temple, yeah, an oh, Indian dear. temple, and you know, there's, you know, there's all that, and I'm I have to play both parts, and like, <laughs> 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 what they must be thinking. <laughs> Back to the chart right now, and at number seventeen, undiscussable with Charlie Webster. It's about domestic and sexual abuse. Charlie was a victim of both. And in the podcast, Charlie speaks to survivors and people who work with perpetrators. I think in general in society, we have this connotation with victim as being weak. Yeah. I think I was brought up like that as well, mm. where like, I'm not a victim because it means I'm weak and yeah. I'm strong and yeah. I can survive anything and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And what do you use of perpetrator then? Because you said that you don't use the term perpetrator either. Oh, it's difficult. I, I don't think we've got another word. I think we just try not to use it. Even the term harmful sexual behaviour, when we're discussing it with young people, 
we don't often say a harmful sexual behaviour. We're a young men's service because as soon as you say harmful sexual behaviour to them, their backs are up. Yeah. Like, what? I didn't do that. And, I mean, an interesting way to, to discuss it is actually I was doing a session with a young man the other day um, and this young man is quite gang involved and he can talk about things like stabbings and murder so freely. They just roll off the tongue. It's nothing to him. But he wouldn't even say the word rape. He kept saying an R charge. And I was like, why are you saying an R charge? What's an R charge? And he was like, yeah, Zach, you know what it is. You know what it is. I said, but say the words. And it's like, it's so scary to them to say rape because rape is, it's worse than, yeah, so it's, it's way worse than murder. So they just don't want to be known as like, weak or a victim or anything to do with that they just as in like they will have been raped when they were younger so they would rather anything else happen to them than them to admit that they were raped the podcast is called undiscussable with charlie webster and charlie your abuser was your stepdad and the abuse was subtle what happened when i was brought up as a kid, I was told that I wasn't good enough and told um, I was called stupid and I was called ugly and I was called that every day as a child. And, you know, it definitely has an effect on you. And that probably somewhere in the back of my mind, you know, was fueled by that. Um, and that's why it's so important. I mean, if there is anybody listening to this that is that can relate to my situation, that's why it's so important to get help and actually work through trauma and um, because it makes you realize that even though you're out of maybe that dangerous situation that the perpetrator can live for a long time in your own head and become your own critic and can really make you unhappy because it tells you you know that you're not good enough and if things don't go right then it's like ah see I told you I told you you weren't good enough and I think a lot of people can relate to that the undiscussable podcast it is incredibly intimate you even had your mum on. Tell us about that. Yeah, to be honest, I was surprised that she said yeah to start with. My mum left my stepdad at the same time. And I felt for the first time that I didn't have to hide because for so long, people didn't know. Was your mum aware of, of, of what you were going, what was going on and how you were feeling? yes and no because don't forget at the time it was very very heightened stress it was dangerous as well and there's a lot in there that I haven't talked about and I don't feel comfortable talking about yet because of how it involves other people and it's it's very very distressing there was a lot more that happened that was extremely extremely dangerous but I feel like maybe also it was a way of me coping at the time and when I was trying to help my mom and trying to sort things out I'm the eldest of the family and and I'm the person that I just go into kind of like parent mode I suppose where I try and sort everything out and take care of everyone it's very much what I'm like and that's kind of the role I've played my entire life really which I suppose is another reason I did Undiscussable because I feel like I it can help people and I feel a real great duty to do that I really really do and when I first told my mum what I was doing she kind of was like okay and then that was it and then I asked her you know to say a few things on tape and that was in episode five and that's when that was at the time when we'd found my mum a safe place 
to be and things were still horrific. So it was quite recent to the events that you made that It was podcast. during the time, yeah. Wow. And I, yeah. Yeah, so when she speaks to me in episode five for the first time, that was when things were happening at the same time. So my mum had just left him and he was threatening her and her life and me and she was in a safe place. And obviously I recorded this, but I had no intention of releasing it until I knew that it was okay to release it until it was safe. And I just wanted to see if she she wanted to say anything because at the time she was also dealing with it in her own head about, you know, she had a lot of guilt and also about what her life was and, and what had happened because, you know, even for her, she it took her a long time to realize how bad it was. And, you know, because to, the way to cope with things is to just do this, is to kind of stick your head in the sand and and try not to accept or realize what life all of a sudden is. You know, and, and I think, again, a lot of victims will relate to that. It took my mum time to really realize, and it's hard to go, yes, I've spent a huge amount of my life being abused. <laughs> it's hard to say that. It's hard, you know, because that realisation hurts. Charlie Webster and her podcast is called Undiscussable. It's number 17 this week on the Pod 20. At number 16, the coronavirus newscast from the BBC. At 15, it's Earworm from friend of the show Dom Jolly. Dom, you've done all sorts of things. Your passion is travel and you're a best-selling travel writer. Are you a punk version of Michael Palin? Oh, I'd, I'd is... take that. I really would take that. I saw him once yeah. on the street and I, I was driving and there was a tiny part of me thought I could just go like that and get it. I need to, <laughs> I need to, I need to kill Bill Bryce and Michael Palin and a couple more. And there was just yeah. a tiny part of me thinking, God. <laughs> no, I met him once. He's, he is just annoyingly the nicest man I've ever met. So he's great. But yeah, punk Michael Palin I'd take. Yeah, the the book Dark Taurus then, uh, sightseeing in the world's most unlikely holiday destinations. Which place did you visit that was the darkest? Well, actually, weirdly, in Dark Tourist, none of them were that dark. I mean, there were elements of Cambodia that were just horrific. I mean, being... Uh, actually, Cambodia was a proper story. Like, I went to Siem Reap. I had this translator of me who was amazing. And we both went up to... Um, to Phnom Penh, the capital, and we went to a place called Tol Sleng, where this, my interpreter's dad, had been taken away and uh, basically was one of the disappeared and people killed by the Khmer Rouge. And there was the picture of his dad taken the moment before he'd been brought in there and then he'd been killed later. And we saw that. And then two days later, I met, I mean, a war criminal, the guy who worked in in the the, the concentration camp who took the photographs and he's still alive and no one had ever prosecuted him. So I went and met this guy who'd taken the, I mean, it was just awful. And then I actually went to a war crimes tribunal, which was going on in Phnom Penh. I managed to get in and there was this guy I'd been reading about who literally had smashed babies against trees and stuff. And it was like pure evil. And, and I went in, and I was terrified about seeing this guy because I'd read so much about him and it was this big thick screen and there's audience here. And then the, judge going on in there and I went in and, and it was that moment when you, you you see the there's that quote about Adolf Eichmann called the banality of evil 
And it really was. I was expecting this monster. And there was just this really, he looked like an accountant. He was just sitting there in a suit. And this guy had just done terrible things. It was, Cambodia was extraordinary because it was very like Lebanon where I grew up. You know, at the time, Lebanon and Cambodia in the 70s were rivaling each other for international headlines and they were both French colonies. But Cambodia was particularly weird because a whole generation was wiped out. So anyone of sort of my age, well, a bit older than me wandering around, you thought you're only wandering around because you were part of the regime. I mean, it's an amazing place. But the darkest place I've been is not in the dark tourist. It was the Congo. The only place I've been truly, truly terrified because normally you go to places and you can gauge danger. So you can sort of see whether something's getting dodgy or not. Chernobyl was difficult because they call it like Trump calls coronavirus, the invisible enemy. So you kind of, you, you start getting paranoid and your tongue goes metallic and you think, how much radiation am I taking in? But normally you can tell whether you're in danger or not. Congo, I was just, <laughs> uh, just totally out of my league. I, I flew up to the very north of the Congo to try and go to this lake. I was a monster hunter trying to find a monster called the Michaelian Bembe. I thought I was Tintin. And I just, three-day canoe ride and someone attacked me with a machete. He got tied to a tree. I had to escape in a canoe. And it was terrible. I thought I was so out of my depth. But also there was a part of me thinking, if I get out of here, this is going to be such a good story. <laughs> so which is kind of the nice bit of travel writing is normally you travel to have a good time. But when things go wrong, I'm like, oh, this is brilliant because it's going to make good copy, which is not good. <laughs> you put yourself in another scary place. You did I'm a Celebrity for a bloke with a, a history of panic attacks. That seems like an odd decision. Well, it is, except... I mean, firstly, reality shows make sense to me because I have a very limited skill set and part of my skill set is ad-libbing. So I was in on I'm a Celeb with uh, Jenny Eclair. Now, Jenny Eclair's amazing stand-up. She's not an ad-libber, is she? No, and she won the Perrier. She's brilliant. But she was terrified and I didn't realise that before. I never saw what I had as a skill. And I'd go on to shows and just ad-lib and not be very funny. And I was like, why not? And I realised they all prepare very carefully and Jenny script and crafts her stuff. But on shows like I'm a Celeb, when they go... This is what you've got to do. I'm like, brilliant. And Jenny hated it. So firstly, I know that I'm all right in that sort of situation. Secondly, I just love reality TV. Uh, in a sense, it's very linked to Hidden Camera and the stuff I do. And I love watching it. I, like, I only watch documentaries. I like real stuff. And I'd watched that show since it started. I just thought, of course, I'm going to go and do it. It'd be amazing. And actually, I would have killed in most other years. I would have physically killed someone. But I was just really lucky in my year. I had Sean Ryder, Nigel Havers... Britt Eklund, I mean, a bit dull, but I had Britt Eklund, Jenny, who was brilliant. And then we had this sort of uber baddie, Dr. Gillian McKeith. Amazing. So in the end, I lost two stone. I had a 22-day total digital detox. Loved it. The worst one was the <laughs> island with Bear Grylls. Really? Barely there Grylls, as I called him. Uh, Barely there Grylls? Yeah. What, is he, was he never there? No, of course not. So we turn up in Panama. We're trained for two days by his Royal Marines, we had a whole day learning how to make furniture out of bamboo, stuff out of bamboo, all this stuff, and I'm concentrating. Then we get on the island, there's no bamboo. But anyway, on the day we go, Bear Grylls appears on the beach, takes his shirt off, because I think he's contractually obliged to, then drives us to the island. He does a bear prayer, because he's a god-botherer, and the crew are all like, oh, we're never going to show it. And then he boots us off, and honestly, the worst three weeks of my life. I mean, it was... we. Did, I didn't eat a single thing for three weeks, nearly died of just it was just awful but I survived it but my leg was just savaged by sand flies and they gave me mild leprosy which I've still got on my leg 
That was the mild word. leprosy. <laughs> well, yeah, they buried. They actually laid eggs in my leg, and I went to the London School of Tro- Medicine and Tropical Hygiene, which is somewhere we'll all be going right now. And the guy, <laughs> he was one of those guys where I showed him the picture of it, and uh, he said, "I'll show you a picture of it." Actually, he was one of those guys that doctors that talk to you as though it's interesting, forgetting that they're actually talking about your body. And he was going, "Ah, yes, this is uh, sandflies." Interestingly, they've actually buried. Uh, eggs. Can you see this? This is my leg when I came off. Pretty disgusting. Yeah. They buried eggs in my leg. And he said, technically, it's a very mild form of leprosy. I went, oh, isn't that brilliant? <laughs> <laughs> and he's thinking, this is fascinating. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, he does. Yeah, they totally had no bedside manner at all. <laughs> Earworm by Dom Jolly is this week's number 15 podcast on the chart. At number 14, it's Desert Island Discs. This week's castaway is Sinead Burke, the disability rights activist and teacher. At 13, the Adam Buxton podcast. This week, Adam has a ramble chat with the legendary music producer and musician, Niall Rogers. At 12, it's Table Manners with Jessie Ware. In her latest episode, her guest is Ellie Goulding. Let's get back to my special guest this week, which is Charlie Webster and her podcast, Undiscussable, which is about domestic and sexual abuse. Charlie, you were sexually abused by your running coach. Some people say perpetrators are affected by the way the media portrays and objectifies women. How responsible are the media for what happens to female victims? That viewpoint is really interesting, but also I think it gives men a really bad reputation. Oh, I've always thought that. When people say that, I always say, people go, look, that's offensive to women. I go, that's actually offensive to men. You know, I think it short changes what men are. and 100%. And and makes men very two-dimensional. Yeah, and I think it's a very old-fashioned way of looking at things. And I don't think it works. Looking at things like that has never changed anything. Yeah. I agree with you. I always think, well, my God, I mean, I I have three brothers. They're not like that. Yeah. You know, and, and and gosh, I am somebody that, let me tell you can say this because I've been abused by multiple men, you know, so, but I do not think men are like that. 100%, I think an abuser is an abuser. It's their behavior, not their gender. I brought up the uh, women in the media deliberately, <laughs> probably unfairly, because you posed for FHM. Yeah. What drove that decision? Ah, that's a good question as well. So, firstly, what's the difference between David Beckham hosting in his boxer shorts and the difference between me being on FHM? By the way, in an era when that's what happened. Yeah. So now we don't have those magazines, right? Yeah, this was 2013, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think you'd done some other modelling about it. It was probably 10 years before that too, wasn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? And I am proud of everything I've done. I modelled throughout university because it also helped me pay for my education. I was a survivor. I am a survivor. I'm not stupid. I knew how I could earn money. And I needed money. I had nothing and no support. That was at the very beginning. But in 2013, when you did FHM, you were on Sky Sports. Yeah, but so was everybody else who'd also done it. So was Kirsty Gallagher. And Sky, at the time, also did their own adverts like that. 
Sky have an advert of Kirsty, who's a wonderful woman, also in scantily clad or, or hot, partly naked yeah. uh, situation. That's how Sky advertised it at the time. Remember, this was an era where those things happened. After you'd done that, did it make it more difficult for you to be taken seriously? But let me reverse the question. Okay. Why does that mean that you aren't taken seriously? Oh, when you made the point about David Beckham in his underwear, I mean, if they had any of the male Sky Sports guys in their underwear, it would have been laughed off as a bit of a, oh, look, this is an interesting... But they were. Yeah. But they were yeah. in men's fitness. Yeah. They were down to their boxes, but nobody ever comments about that. And also, many women also drool over... Attractive men, we see it all the time. It's, yeah, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, like I, for example, if I got asked to do that now, I wouldn't do it. I've done it. I don't feel the need to do it. But the fact that I have to, because I'm a woman, I have to constantly prove credibility is absolutely nonsense because that just falls into the sexist trap again. Yeah. And, you know, the women that were like, oh no, I'm, I'm, we can't do anything. You know, we, we have to, we have to dress in suits. We have to, oh my God, we have to do this to try and get any type of credibility. It's absolutely goddamn stupid and ridiculous. Well, it is because men and women are not the same and you don't no. get equality by turning women into men. That's not what it's about. It's about respect. You know, when the same channel that I was at when I did that also told women they had to dress a certain way and act like women because I used to turn up at that channel in my training kit because I used to cycle and run to work and I got told off and told that I should look like a woman should and not turn up in my training kit. However, the men that turned up in their training kit got applauded. So I think it's very, very hypocritical and I think it's very important that that doesn't mean that that person doesn't have credibility and doesn't have knowledge and doesn't have intelligence. Charlie Webster, and the podcast is called Undiscussable. I'm Graham Mack, it's the Pod 20, counting down the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your suggestions at thepodcastradio.co.uk. At number 11, Scarlett Moffat wants to believe. Scarlett is obsessed with conspiracy theories, but can she convince her non-believer boyfriend, Scott? Number 10 this week, Off the Menu with Ed Gamble and James A. Castor. The comedians invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. Number nine, No Such Thing as a Fish, a podcast from the writers of QI. They discuss the best things they've found out this week. Before we get into the top eight, let's zoom again with the journalist Piper Terrett from the Lockdown Lowdown podcast. We're talking about my attempts to become an audio book narrator. I've already knocked back one, you know, because it's too hard. Yeah. So I read the, the, the before I went and got into the audition, I read the notes from the author on doing the audition. Two scenes in the audition script are the most challenging in terms of language switching. Ooh. Followed by the song Vinny Vine in medieval Latin. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> followed by a Catholic prayer. There's also German, French and a bit of Welsh. <laughs> I should sit you down to the ground, Graham. No, well, at first I thought, well, you know, I like a challenge. And each one of these, I'm, I'm going out of my comfort zone. I'm just got not, you know, I'm not trying to find a book about football or the Beatles or something. I'm going to, I'll find, if, if I'm going to be a professional audio book narrator, I should be able to take on whatever they throw at me. And yeah. 
Used to sing in a band, so singing, right. not that yeah, hard. Heard you singing, yeah. And unpronounceable words. Well, I've just done in the first book loads of Indian place names, Indian plants, Indian rivers, Indian birds, Indi- you know. And for each one, I go on YouTube and you can find, or you, uh, Google, and you can find they'll play you somebody saying, pronouncing the word. Yeah, it's brilliant, that, isn't it? Yeah. So I thought, well, if this is like medieval Latin and there's words, I can probably find somewhere and listen to them. And yeah, it's not the end of the world. And the same with the languages, you know, the German and the Welsh and what. I could probably work it out, bit of work. But the thing's only 2.2 hours. So how much of it can there be? So then it says, audition script opens with Vinay Vinay, which must, in capital, in capital letters, be sung to be considered. You can hear me singing the song at, and there's a link to SoundCloud. So I went to the SoundCloud, and there's the author. Not a chance. (laughs) No one is going to take on this book. It's the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio with me, Graham Mack. Counting them down, we're up to number eight. How to fail with Elizabeth Day. Every week, a guest explores what their failures taught them about how to succeed. Number seven, telling everybody everything. Catherine Ryan. This is a great podcast. She's that Canadian comedian you've seen on loads of panel shows. And she talks really one-to-one. You listen to it, it's like she's talking just to you about everything like she doesn't hold back she she talks about everything that's why it's called telling everybody everything from Catherine ryan this week's number seven at six chris and rosie ramsey shagged married annoyed just before we get to the top five let's check back in with my special guest charlie webster who hosts the undiscussable podcast which is about domestic abuse charlie the scale of this and the number of people affected is frightening yeah we're not talking about minority what needs to change here there's multiple things it's kind of a multifaceted approach really and just to reiterate what you just said it isn't a minority that's firstly what we need to get rid of it's not a minority is actually a majority. We're speaking to the majority, not the minority. So I'll start with maybe like a society approach. So as a society, we need to really understand what domestic abuse is and who domestic abuse affects. So it affects everyone, firstly. So it, it doesn't just affect women or white women that are working class or whatever the perception is. It affects all ethnicities, all genders, all sexual orientation, children, elderly, middle-aged, young, whatever. It just affects everyone. And that's something that we still don't understand as a society. So that needs to change. We also need to stop blaming victims like we just talked about as a society. So there needs to be an educational change across society to understand that domestic abuse, the foundation of it is about control and power. Because as soon as we understand that, then we go, oh, yes. You know, that's why. And then we understand that actually even when a try and vi- when a victim tries to leave, then they're also risking their life. You know, and we've seen multiple deaths. So it's not as simple as a victim just leaving. And we've seen in, we've seen deaths of children happening right right now. So we really need to blow it out of the water as society and start talking about it. Right, so it's an awareness thing because it is yeah. something that people don't like to talk about. We have to; it's uncomfortable. But we have to talk yeah. about it. Oh, it's uncomfortable. But you know what? While we don't talk about it, we we allow it. We, you know, we are allowing it 
by keeping it, you know, using that really old phrase behind closed doors or, oh, it's just a domestic. What we still see is that we are enabling it. So as a society as a whole, education and perception needs to change, which is one of the reasons why I did Undiscussable because it originally it was like made by survivors, me and my friends, for survivors. But actually it's also for the general public to understand what it is. And then from a government system approach, there needs to be mandatory police training because there isn't. Right, so they don't see it. Okay. I'm not blaming police. I'm blaming the people that made the decisions above because I know police are under immense pressure. And, you know, they also remember police are a cross-section of society. So they bring their own views to it. Yeah. So, you know, if they, they open the door and walk in the house, they immediately think it's the woman. What if it was the man that's the victim? If somebody in my podcast, the police came and they spoke to the woman, the man had just been attempted to be strangled and was behind the bathroom door, hardly breathing. But the, the police didn't check on him because they thought it was the woman. So, you know, that's why it's so important we understand what it is. And also, if the police walk in the door and the woman, you know, let's say it's a woman or a victim just says, oh, you know, everything's fine. And the police walk away. Of course, the victim's going to say that. Because if they don't say that, then something dreadful will happen to them. So that's why we need to educate the police. There isn't mandatory training at the moment, and there absolutely needs to be. Because victims shouldn't be knocking on the police's door going, please help me, please help me, please help me, multiple times before they even listen. That's what happens right now. Legislation needs to change. So there's a domestic abuse bill. In fact, the reading is happening right now as we're doing this. There needs to be a law, which is what they are talking about, which is domestic abuse. So believe it or not, domestic abuse isn't actually legislatively against the law. So what the police has to do, have to do, is to find, you know, if they if they have a perpetrator, they have to find something against the law that the perpetrator's done. Right. For example, an assault yeah. or a GBH. That's not domestic abuse. Domestic abuse isn't an incident at a time, but that's how the law treats it. And that's why it's very hard legally to prosecute domestic abuse. Because they have, you know, you could have 20 years and they might find one incident and charge it as GBH. Yeah. So that that's what's wrong with the system. Um, so that desperately needs to change. And also we, we as a society and as a government and as a um, system use sticking plasters far too much. We need to look at prevention. We need to help young people. We need to not demonize young people or young offenders that, are perpetrating behaviours that they've experienced as victims as children. We need to look at young children that are playing truancy, you know, that are expelled from school, because often it comes from, they don't just do things like that. Children don't just behave like that way. They behave like that from a deep place of unhappiness and fear, which ultimately tends to come from the home. Charlie Webster and her excellent podcast, Undiscussable, is at number 17 on the Pod 20 this week. I'm counting them down and we've made it to the top five, which looks like this. At number five, the Joe Rogan experience. This podcast is worth 100 million US dollars. Well, that's what Spotify paid for exclusive rights to it this week. And number four, Happy Place with Fern Cotton. Number three, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Lockdown Parenting Hell. At number two, That Peter Crouch Podcast. And at number one, for the fourth week in a row, it's Grounded with Louis Theroux. This week, Louis's guest is Lenny Henry. 
That's it for this episode of the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio. I'm Graham Mack, and thanks to this week's special guest podcasters, Charlie Webster, Dom Jolly, and Piper Terrett. Next week, my guest is a broadcasting legend, Michael Harrison. Michael is a veteran presenter, programmer, and radio station owner. He's the publisher of Talkers Magazine, which is the Bible of talk radio and the new talk media. And he also hosts the Harrison Rap on podcast radio. How is talk radio doing in the USA right now, Michael? Well, there's certainly a lot to talk about, and uh, people are listening. From a standpoint of, uh, are people interested in what talk radio has to offer in the United States? Absolutely. It's it's hot. But financially, uh, it's a struggle. All radio in the U.S., uh, just like newspapers, magazines, and many other forms of media that are based on advertising and based on an analog foundation, uh, based on, you know, the, the 20th century way of doing things, printing presses, transmitter towers, signals that go to radios, movies that open in theaters. All of those 20th century media are having a tremendously difficult time transitioning into the advertising world of digital media. So that's a whole different issue from whether or not people are listening to talk radio. Part of that is the fact that people are listening to talk radio online. So more and more, you know, the smartphone is becoming the transistor radio of of the present. And that's causing all kinds of problems uh, in terms of the value of radio stations. Because at one time, radio stations had a tremendous value because it was a monopoly protected by the government to be able to broadcast to the magic box, which was a radio, an AM or an FM radio. And you had a monopoly within your market and all that stuff. Well, that paradigm is just falling apart. And... Most of, I'm giving you a complicated answer, but, but this is the real answer to your question. Most American radio, the value of its assets, the, the, the money that it has invested in the game is tied up in what we call the stick. The radio station, the AM and FM station with a transmitter, the license and that old paradigm. And more and more of the listening is taking place in this stickless arena of the internet where you can just broadcast you know for you know an investment 20 bucks you're on the air worldwide and here the the guy with the radio station put 10 million dollars into the ability to broadcast to a 50 mile area it, it it doesn't make sense that's the issue that talk radio like all radio faces but in terms of whether they're listening on their refrigerator an iphone or an old am fm appliance Talk radio is extremely vital uh, in the culture of the United States here at the beginning, the crazy year 2020, the beginning of the third decade of the 21st century. It's amazing. Michael Harrison, he'll be my guest next week right here on the Pod 20. And what will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will Louis Theroux be number one for a fifth week? Will Peter Crouch still be stuck in the number two slot? if you'll pardon the expression. And will your favourite podcast be on next week's countdown? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.